Most of us see a diagnosis of Alzheimer's as the beginning of a journey that will be filled with frustration, sadness, and possibly worse. There are very few positive stories we can read. But what if, just by the way we approach caring for our loved one, we can actually help keep their minds stimulated? If we're really lucky, maybe this continued stimulation will slow their decline, or maybe, just maybe, they can have improvements in some area of their lives. What would that journey look like? And is it even possible? Reading Choosing Joy and Alzheimer's Book of Hope, I saw what could be possible if we approach this diagnosis with a different frame of mind. While every person with Alzheimer's is different, I present this episode of Joy to you in the hopes that you find a way to choose joy despite Alzheimer's. This episode of Fading Memories is brought to you by Family History Films. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those of us caring for a loved one with memory loss. Hey listeners, before we get into the show, I want to say thank you for tuning in every week. If you have episode suggestions, questions, feel free to contact me via the website. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow me on social media and get ideas dog photos, maybe even a few behind the scenes of me. All those links are at the bottom of the show notes every week. And be sure to check out the show notes because there's frequently extra information that I don't think you'd want to miss out on. Now, on to the show. With me today is Helene Berger. She is the author of Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. And don't we all need some hope? The book was inspired by the unanticipated positive results her husband achieved after his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So thank you for being with me, Helene. It is a pleasure to be with you. And before we even begin, I want to thank you for the wonderful work you are doing, helping so many people. Appreciate it very very deeply. Thank you. So what was the inspiration for the book besides your wonderful husband, 80? Huh. Well, it wasn't supposed to be a book. (laughs) I never dreamed of writing a book. Um, And uh, what happened was every time I found that I did something that worked, I made little notes to myself so I remember what they were. And uh, I started thinking, he was diagnosed with six years, I started thinking near the end that, you know, some of these ideas might really help a lot of people, but I still didn't believe I would do it. And later on, I gathered all of my notes and spent about eight years <laughs> deciding what, what to do with them. I mean, the work, kind of working on them halfway. And then finally, um, I, I said, you really do have something here. You've got to go, go with it. Um, but I think, I think in this moment in history, when we're living through the COVID virus, we have to put it all in context. And none of us ever knows what's happened, what's, what the future is. We know where life is full of the unexpected. But I don't think we've ever dealt with an unexpected in any of our lives, and maybe perhaps a war, uh, this, this severe and this serious. And I think, I think it leads very well into the, your question. And 
of, of, of our lives. When, when we're faced with a situation where we see a loved one declining, whatever the reason, whether it's uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, prostate cancer, or heart trouble, uh, we're never prepared. And I think what we, if life is so full of the unexpected, it's we have to figure out how we're going to react to that. What are we going to do? And the way we react determines whether we're frustrated and angry uh, or whether we're content and at peace. And I think in a sense that really sums up what the whole book is about. Because luckily, that unwittingly, I, I chose a course that gave each of us the chance to succeed. I know uh, there's an amazing um, person, uh, author, Victor Frankel, who is a, a psychiatrist and, 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 a, and a wonderful author and wrote many books. And in one of those books, in Man's Search for Meaning, he writes something that is always with me. And he writes... And he, he, was, he came through, I would say, he came through the Nazi death camps and saw it all. And coming from that experience, he says, the thing that no one can take away from us is the right to choose our attitude. And I think that's probably what helped me so much through this whole experience. Choosing Joy describes throughout the book how powerfully our actions, our attitude, our frustration or support affects our loved one and they affect our loved one in a powerful way. And it's the attitude that we choose to bring to our loved one that can either diminish or, or demean or agitate or, or bring support and contentment and dignity. And I wasn't this wise when I started out. <laughs> it took me a long time to see what was happening. And I, I do want to say something before, uh, very important. You were telling me as we chatted before uh, this phone started about what's happening with your mom and, um, and, and how serious and how important it is. And I want to say to you and to all your listeners in the future that I am offering what worked for us. Our result was so rare. And I don't want to come off in a Pollyannish way and say, well, if you've done what I did, you know, I, that's the last thing I want because there are no guarantees. Every relationship is important. And, and the way we deal with it is important. And in some cases, where it depends where the brain is damaged. In some cases, the, the, the part of the brain is so damaged that nobody will ever have the, res the result I was fortunate enough to get. And that's really what inspired the book. He inspired the book because of how, how he came along. But I don't want to imply that it's one's fault if they don't. The odds are not that they're going to have this. But I do say that there are in hundreds and thousands of Caregivers have given their best. They care deeply and they've given love and devotion beyond measure and still end up with someone who doesn't know their name or maybe violent. And that's, that depends on where it is. So regardless of your relationship, 
the thing that I want people to take away from the book, no matter what the relationship is, I truly believe that the evolving methodology described throughout the book has, not, not a guarantee, but has the potential, has the potential to benefit both the patient and the caregiver. And especially if it's introduced early enough. When, someone, when, when the habit of fighting back and anger is there, it's, it's very difficult, very difficult to change. Well, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, my husband uh, was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's after our 50th uh, wedding anniversary, very shortly after our 50th wedding anniversary. And I must say that, oh, and, and the, the diagnosis was really interesting because we sat at the, the, the Wien Center for Memory Disorder, the head of the center, and when the doctor pronounced the words, three words, you have Alzheimer's, my husband's immediate response, quiet, calm, not emotional, was simply four words, three words, I don't want to live anymore. And during the first year of his life, he went down the typical Alzheimer's path with frustration and irritability and, and rigidity and annoyance. And fortunately for me, never violence, never, never that. But, uh, but highly, also highly inappropriate behavior. And fast forward a year, um, he became known as the man with the radiant smile, full of joy of life. And I have to tell you, the, um, the last night, uh, unexpectedly the last night of his life, because he was healthy, going beautifully, and improving and improving and improving. So the last night of his life, we took 17 friends out to dinner. Thank you to them. And I purposely didn't tell him who, who was coming because I didn't want him to feel the pressure of having to remember the names. They walked in and he greeted every one of those friends by name, six years, six years into Alzheimer's. And then he sat down at the table. He was then in a wheelchair. We'll talk about it later, but he fractured his hip two and a half years before the end. He was in a wheelchair and he sat at the table and unbeknownst to me, raised his glass of water he never drank. And he made the most articulate, profound toast, thanking the people for their caring, for their friendship, for their calls, for taking care of me. And two of our close friends, as they were leaving, said the identical words, are you sure he's got Alzheimer's? Which, of course, he did. So that's, that's the beginning. And, um, and I can say that it, it's the way we interacted with each other that made the difference, because that first year he was going down the, the typical path. And, um, you know, we, we worked hard to, to change that, and I'm happy to discuss some of those methods. And, and one that's perfect. I have one quick question on the diagnosis. You had, well, you still do. You have two children and four grandchildren. So when he was diagnosed, did you tell them right away? Oh, my goodness. First of all, uh, my son uh, 
is a cardiologist. Our daughter is a professor. I didn't have to tell them anything because they saw him decline. And, um, it, and they were in on, even though they don't live in where I do, they live in another city, they were part of every step I made. And I'll get to the, what you're leading to now is the acceptance. I'll get to that later. But they were a part of, and, and it was not a surprise. They saw him slipping. And even our grandchildren, some were too young, but one was 15 or 16, and asked the most tender, that they all adored him. He was, he was a beautiful man. And she asked the most tender and profound questions. Uh, and it was, and they're in the book, but it mm-hmm. very, very, very involved. So how did, how did we work together? I didn't bring this change about by myself. Uh, I think that togetherness is important because I always felt, I always knew my dad needed more help with mom and I was willing to provide what I could, but I could not get past his barrier of he would take care of it. He didn't need it. They were fine. Blah, 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 blah. And that was a mistake. It was a mistake now, for don't, him. Don't keep saying mistake. We do the best. <laughs> well, this is true. Hindsight is wonderful. We can change the world. If, if hindsight is don't yes <laughs> so hard on yourself please oh no I know I no, you didn't make a mistake you did the best. oh he did and that's that's <laughs> a very important point that I should be talking about when I speak we all do the best we can I was fortunate and I was fortunate because I had I had a beautiful husband who we were very close and instead of fighting me he, he understood he understood from the very beginning even when it was going downhill that I wanted what was best for him and best for us. So I started to change after, after a whole year of watching him go down with, I watched him with Howard, who's a very bright man and a kind gentleman. And um, I realized what was happening and I began to understand that, and this is really important, I could not change him, but I could change myself. And that was one of the key, the key realizations that helped me. And after 50 years of marriage, you know somebody pretty well. And uh, I was sensitive to his every mood and he was sensitive to mine. And slowly, I began to observe how my actions were contributing to his decline. And I'll give you an example. Um, one of the universally known symptoms of Alzheimer's is the patient asks the question over and over and over again. And uh, I think all of us uh, try very hard on the first or the second, or maybe even the third, try to answer it sweetly. And by the fourth or fifth or sixth time, there's a little <laughs> or a lot of frustration comes in. And we may, not, we may, say, it, we may say the same words, you may say the same words, but by that time, most of us, and I'm sure I'm not, was not alone, will answer with either an intake of breath or a raised eyebrow or some nonverbal or just, just a sigh, a nonverbal communication which says to the patient or to your loved one, uh, 
I've told you that a thousand times already. And it, that frustration comes in. And one night when I did that, I saw that it was a punch in the gut to him. And I was determined, I am not going to do that again to this beautiful man. If, and my mantra was, if he remembered, he wouldn't be asking. How can I be annoyed and frustrated with him if he doesn't remember? And so little by little, um, I, I, I would answer, if it was the seventh or eighth time, I would say, sweetheart, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine tonight. And sometimes he would even say, but sweetly, and if, if asked again, sometimes he would just sort of smile because he remembered that he had asked me, he had asked, asked me before. And watching his reaction, I was just made that determination. And by the way, another mantra that I had uh, later on, I'm trying to think what the other one was. Um, oh, that he didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't ask this disease for himself or for me. <laughs> so instead of feeling blame, well, why don't you do it better? Uh, so that that simple thought, and and I can sum it up because this is the theme through the entire book. The one simple thought through all of it was: the more we react with compassion with tenderness, with simple kindness, rather than frustration and annoyance, the more we will have a, a, a cooperative response back. And that is, that is crucial. And over and over and over. And um, when differences uh, uh, came up, and they surely did, um, I tried so hard, consciously at this point, consciously, um, not to not to respond to them with anger, but with loving words and kindness. And let me tell you, that is not easy to do. It sounds easy. It's magic. <laughs> That's true. It, it is absolutely magic. And, um, and, and then I thought of the mantra that, you know, he didn't ask for this either. So uh, that's, that's, those are some of the choices that I made early on. Very happy for the two of you that you were able to see the punch in the gut when you were like, oh, I've answered this question five times. I just recently learned that, as I've mentioned before, my mom is still quite verbal, but none of it makes sense. It's, it's, and it's a sentence, but it's, it's like different pieces of memories put together in a sentence, and it's like, what is she talking about? And I'll scrunch up my face, like thinking like, you know, I'm trying really hard to understand what she's trying to tell me so that I can respond to her in a positive way. And that scrunching up on my face thinking, hmm, what is she saying? Other people have interpreted it, it as anger, which I don't understand because to me it looks like confusion and it is confusion and it's not anger, but she interprets it negatively. As soon as I you know, go like, hmm, you know, you think of the thinking emoji, she gets irritated. And so I have to, I've just learned it is irrelevant what she's trying to tell me. I just agree. Oh yes, that sounds interesting. Oh, uh-huh. Oh, really? Okay. Which is difficult because I need a little bit more stimulation than that. But if I 
if I try to figure out what she's telling me and I scrunch up my face in, in what I think is like the home face is the best way I can describe it on verbally, she gets ir irritated. And it's very, very obvious. And she's very, very responsive to very subtle body language. I've learned that the hard way. That's just what I was trying to say, that he, he was responsive to, to a raised eyebrow. And that's why we have to do, not have to, we, I try to do as much as we can to give tenderness and kindness. Uh, shall I give you a couple of examples of some of the yeah. things I learned? Okay. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is unique about my book, Choosing Joy, is that every time, especially in the early years, every, every time I did something that worked, I asked myself afterwards, why did that work? What, what was the underlying principle behind what I did accidentally? <laughs> okay. And, um, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, we had, uh, the, first, uh, the first years, uh, uh, a lovely, wonderful housekeeper who came in three times a week. And one morning, uh, she was there and uh, came into the bedroom. And had she said, in a nice, cheery voice, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready. I would have thought that was lovely. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Exactly. She didn't do that. What she did was say, Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And my jaw dropped with what she just did. And what the difference is between your breakfast is ready, which is an implied, no matter how sweetly you say it, it's an implied command. Your breakfast is ready. You have to come and eat now. What she did is give him a choice. She gave him a choice. Are you ready? And he would say, yes. And I, I was stunned by her brilliance. And I changed almost everything I said to him in the next four years to a question. None of us, not ourselves, our husbands, our, our children, our children, especially our grandchildren, nobody wants to be told what to do all day long. And whatever field the person is in, whether they're driving a truck or the president of a bank or, or, or a doctor, nobody, we all rebel when we're constantly told what to do, especially if someone's in a position of authority. And suddenly he's being, so, the ring through his nose being right all day. And that was probably one of the biggest changes. And by the way, what I learned from Lisette, I constantly was observing everybody around me and learning from everybody because every time I saw something. So by the way, what I told you the principle, the principle of that was simply question versus command. And it was at night, would you like to watch this movie, that movie, the other movie? And, and the choices that I gave him were always fine with me. I, whatever they were, the, the answer was going to be fine. But all that initial anger stopped because he was making the decisions. He wasn't being told what to do. So here's something that I learned from her. And by the way, later on, 
after he fractured his hip, I had, I had no extra help for the first uh, three, three plus years until he fractured his hip. And then I had no choice. He actually was in a wheelchair after that. He never really walked, even though he had the hip surgery. And um, we, we, we keep learning, but, but learning from everybody. I'll, I'll give you another one, if you wish. Um, I, I do. Can I interject one thing really quick? Most of the time I've read and heard, you know, don't ask too many questions because it frustrates them, which can be true. And back in September, so this is six or seven months ago, my mom and I were at her neurologist appointment. Her neurologist is a fantastic woman, takes a lot of time with her patients and is therefore always significantly behind schedule. Mm-hmm. And my mother does not wait patiently. So I went in, I told them we are here. How far behind is the doctor? Because we also ended up there early, which compounded the problem. And they tried to kind of pretend she was less behind than she was, which was nice. But I said, mom does not wait patiently. We are going across the parking lot and we're going to get something to drink. Either call or text me when you'd like me to start heading back this way. Great idea. Great with that. Great idea. And pardon me? That was a great idea. Yes. Well, she gets, gets really agitated and then I'm agitated and the people around us and it's just this cascading agitation and that's just bad for everybody. So I'm like, you know, we're in this, not really a strip mall, but in a, a complex with medical buildings and small restaurants. So we went to this hamburger place. Neither one of us needed food. And so I asked her, would you like an iced tea or a Diet Coke? And she goes, you have whatever you want. And I said, oh, thank you. Okay, I'm going to have iced tea. Do you want iced tea or Diet Coke? And she said, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. You do whatever you want. And she goes off on this rambling tangent of this hostessy speak that never gave me an answer. So I just ordered us two iced teas and called it a day. And from that moment on, it was September 16th, 2019, I stopped giving her A-B choices because I was under the... I believe erroneous idea that an A B because she wasn't able to give me a choice. It was, it would frustrate her to just keep asking, but consequently her combativeness increased, you know, not necessarily from the next day forward, but from September on it got worse and worse. So if we are not in the position that we are currently in, which is I cannot see my mom because of this virus, and she is now bed bound until the leg heals, and at which point she probably won't be able to walk. I don't know. It'll be interesting. My plan had been to go back to giving her A-B choices. Would you like iced tea or Diet Coke? Deal with her non-answers. And then what I didn't do back in September would be to say, oh, here's here's the iced tea you ordered, mom making it seem like she'd been asked a question, she'd made a choice, and here's the result. But unfortunately, I'm not sure I'm going to get that option at this point. But I I found it interesting that by choosing not to, quote-unquote, irritate her with questions she was unable to answer, I think I may have accelerated the frustrations that led to the combativeness. So You're you're bringing up a a really important point because... It, there is not one size fits all for this. Obviously, what worked for me and my husband uh, 
is not working for you. I think it could have. I just needed to add a twist to it be, because she's so very late stage. Mm. By by her not giving me an answer, you know, you'd think she's she's not good with yes or no either. So because she's unable to give an an answer to an A B question or a yes or no question, I stopped asking questions, and I think it came across as controlling, like you were saying. So it's. Of course, you know, I now have figured this out in hindsight, and I don't think the combativeness is going to go away. But it's just, I wanted to throw that out there because we do hear frequently that, you know, don't ask them if they want breakfast or don't ask, you know, don't ask too many questions in a row because sometimes it feels, um, what's the right word? You know, like if you come in, oh, good morning, Mr. Burger. How did you sleep? And are you ready for breakfast? It just, it feels almost like an attack. You got to give their brain some time to process. So just her asking the one question, are you ready for your breakfast now? Gave him time to process and answer. Did he ever say no? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's very yeah, interesting. He was, he was, he was. Just from from day one, I I never I know people uh, have written I've written uh, we both read tons of books and many people find that a white lie works. It's in the, your dresser and the dress is not there. They're in the hospital or something, and they say uh, okay. Uh, my from day one, I I I couldn't tell him a white lie, and because of that. He trusted me. He knew that, you know, he knew. And, and it, it went such a long way because from day one, I never bent the truth to him. I hadn't been in all my years of marriage and I wasn't about to start then. And, and, and of course, he was a kind, gentle, very bright man. And he reacted to that. And later on, when he kept transferring financial responsibility to me, it was because he had absolute trust that I was doing what was best for both of us. And so every case is different. It would be very That is true. It would be so nice if we could put it, here are the rules, do this, fine. No. I want to interject a quick comment about white lies, or as they're commonly referred to in my support group, fiblets. Mom does not remember that my dad is deceased or that her dog was rehomed, and to remind her of either of those facts would be cruel. My grandmother would occasionally get upset and make statements like, well, your father's left me for another woman. And my aunt would tell her, no, mom, he's dead. Now you'd think that that might actually be reassuring, but it was not. So depending on your loved one, fiblets or white lies might be easier for them to cope with than the truth. Maintaining trust is important. And that's what I've tried to do with my mom all of these years, but I do use fiblets and she still trusts me. I had my experience, you have your experience and they're totally different. And, and I just, we have to glean from each other what, what we can. Uh, exactly. And that's why I like to talk to everybody I can because of the, and I, I don't talk about current events too often because I'm blessed with the episodes not going stale, but this is March 24th, 2020. And most of the country is on 
mandatory shelter in place. I am and, in and online like we are right now. Yeah, for real. Fortunately, <laughs> this is normal for me. So this is like, this is um, basically back to normal, but not being able to go to the gym and all my other normal stuff. Yesterday, our Rotary Club met online the same way we're doing for the first time because we can't meet in person. So a lot of my life is completely different than it was a month ago. Mom's is completely different than it was. So it's like very crazy. And earlier today, I was feeling very down because I can't see my mom. I can't do the things that I feel I need to do for her. And I have learned through past guests to embrace that feeling. Okay. There isn't anything I can do about it. And so I just decided I'm going to even, I'm going to make an extra effort to do what I can for the listeners. Some of which are, stuck at home with loved ones and they're not allowed, they're not allowed to go out. So they can't go to the adult day programs. Some of them, their caregivers are not coming in. I mean, it's just a disaster. So I feel as if my situation is, it's still negative. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I've made the comment if my mom dies while well, I can't see her, it's going to be pretty ugly, but I understand <laughs> that's what we need to do. It's an ugly time. It is very, so lost my train of thought, which I absolutely hate. Okay. <laughs> I went on a tangent. Let me, let me come in with, um, uh, you asked, uh, we were discussing before you asked about um, uh, some of the things we did. And one of the most important things we did that kept him that way uh, was keeping an active mind. And he never was sat in front of a TV set all day that was rationed. 45 minutes a night, and, he, and usually he would want to watch, and he made the choices what he wanted to watch, usually musicals. And in the beginning, he watched 24, and it was too violent for him, and he stopped. Um, but um, I encouraged, it, 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 he was, every minute of his day was programmed. He had a very busy day, and every minute of it was set. And the, the fact that he knew what was going to happen all the time made a tremendous difference. I remember early on, we had a, a personal trainer come in. We had a trainer come in. And the woman was quite good, but she was fitting him into a schedule. And every day she could come in 11 this day and three that day, and it wasn't working. He needed, he needed the routine. He needed to know what to expect. And by the way, all over the house, we had charts of what was happening every many day, so he always knew. But um, some of the things that we did to keep his mind active, I turned to activities that he once did and enjoyed. I turned to brand new activities uh, and tried different things. Some worked, some didn't. For example, he, um, he used to play the piano beautifully. Um, Beethoven, Mozart, and Bach, and Brahms, and, and, and he stopped after he fractured his, uh, before he fractured his hip. He stopped, when he was diagnosed, he stopped playing. And I didn't want to push it. But maybe third year in, into it, until one day and said, you know, honey, you, you used to love playing the piano. You got so much pleasure out of it. Why, why, did you, why aren't you playing? My fingers don't work anymore. I said, well, maybe your fingers don't work because you stopped playing. And would you give me 10 minutes a day and see how it goes? I said, Okay. Within two weeks, he was at that piano an hour a day, smiling and beaming and enjoying. 
And I just had to open that door a little bit for him and he walked in. There were other things that he had never done in his life, like drawing. I shouldn't say that. He was an engineer and he knew, uh, he knew how to draw straight lines and, and floor plans. That, that he was good at. But drawing, color, never, never, never. And one night after dinner, I put a huge pad, pad of fresh um, drawing paper and crayons and markers and pens. And I said, draw something. And he looked at me like I had lost it. <laughs> he said, what? And I didn't, I, didn't I, don't, I never knew what was going to come out of my mouth. It wasn't that I planned this ahead of time. I said, draw whatever makes you happy. And he looked at me and he started drawing. Primitive. I got more advanced uh, later on. Later on. And virtually every night, not only did he draw, but he was so proud of them that he signed and dated them. In fact, the picture on the cover, I don't get the book over. Whoops. Here's, here's, a copy, here's a copy of his book. And I don't know if you can see it in this light, but... The It's Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope, and the face of the sun, the smiling sun in the middle, was one of his drawings two months before he passed away. And you couldn't draw. And that one, by the way, every now and then he'd label them. That one he actually labeled, and he called it Happy Sun. <laughs> so this was not done by a graphic artist. This is one of... One of his, and throughout the book, there's loaded with his drawings and his answers to questions and, and, his, and his later on little letters to me. So everything I tried didn't work at first. Sudoku, he was a math, he always talked of himself as a mathematician. And I tried Sudoku and he was so confused by boxes and where which numbers go there that it was frustrating him. And we let it go. When I saw him doing better a couple of years later, I thought, I'm going to try that again. And he loved it. He was, he was, his mind was getting better. And we sat, I never gave him an answer, but I sat with him, which didn't hurt. <laughs> he loved the company. And so all these different things that some worked, some didn't, some we came back to. And, um, and one of the things that was really important for him, as I indicated, he loved classical music. And we had concert series to so many things. But, but even if it was baseball that someone loved or, or a football game. So he loved, he was used to going to music. And what that did for him, because he, in the last few years when he was in the wheelchair especially, we always had a seat on the aisle so that could, he could get in and out of the wheelchair easily. And we would always get there early so it wouldn't disturb anyone. And he sat there like a king holding court all the friends, because everybody had the same series, all the people would come over and just say a quick hello, how, how are you doing, and a smile. And it was his social life without putting the strain on our friends, let's go out for dinner and have them go through dinner for an hour. And that, so every one of these activities gave, gave him something else that was, that was really important. And on his own, I must say, I actually was in my office. Uh, doing some work, and I came out and found a little love note from him. 
And I praised him up to the sky. And legitimately, I wasn't putting it on. I was just so touched. And that became from him, whether I was occasionally out or at home, I would have a little love letter. Little ones, some of them were in the book and left, left for me. And let me tell you, it was really hard. I had hundreds of his drawings, hundreds of his notes, and it was very hard to limit it in the book because I could have a book of just his drawings. Um, but, but all of them, especially the drawings, show uh, from this man who said, I don't want to live anymore, to the, 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 their, their drawings are whimsical and, and have perspective. And they're just, they're all, the, the, when you drew our house, the house had, had a smile. It's, they just reflect as, as they do in kids, you know, when, when kids are very young. The psychiatrists want to see their drawings and they know, they know where their mind is. So these were some of the things that we did to keep his mind active. So are you familiar with family history films? They're from your part of the world. They're from London. No, I'm not actually, no. Well, Family History Films is a company that creates personal broadcast quality documentaries that are fully researched by professional genealogists and historians exploring your family's ancestry and origins all over the world. As a client, Family History Films will work closely with you, filming in both the comfort of your own home or at locations special to you and your family. That sounds amazing. The films are personalized and personal, and they're built around interviews with you and your family members, and your memories are the most important source. Clients have described their work as PBS quality, an amazing experience, and fascinating to watch. You'll find more testimonials at myfamilyhistoryfilm.com. The process works wonders for older clients, letting them relive their memories, not just by helping to make the films, but by watching them. That would be incredible to have because Dad was born in India, um, so we don't, he was brought over on a boat. There's no, there's actually nothing of him coming into this country. So um, it's just been, it's been horrendous trying trying to, track it now because he doesn't really remember anything you know that's Mm -hmm. brilliant family history films works with people from coast to coast and around the world if you'd like to find out more about your family history visit myfamilyhistoryfilm.com or email paul hurley their creative director at paul at myfamilyhistoryfilm.com to arrange a free no obligation consultation so I have a couple questions. Sure. Was he always open to new things and new ideas? No. As a no, interesting. No. Hmm. Because I'm trying to figure out why he was. My mom was always very creative. She was a seamstress. She painted. She did woodworking. And have you introduced that stuff back to her? I tried. Was a. A total not, failure. Not the woodworking <laughs> with a knife. Oh, God, no. No, this was just basic um, and, and a creative, a little creative project for the grandchildren two and a half years ago, um, just with ink pens. Real simple. Just basically scribble inside these hearts, and I dropped um, alcohol on them, so it's a cheap version of alcohol inks. <laughs> And I did not know at the time that her visual processing was so shot. 
and that was causing complications. I then erroneously thought that she could sign them, love grandma. Uh, I was very lucky after 30 minutes or so to coax her into just signing her initials. And we're talking three little tiles. So I'm not, I was not asking her to write a love note. So I'm very, I'm, it's interesting. Like I have guests whose family members get in the later stages and are no longer verbal. My mother is certainly very verbal for better or worse. And, but she couldn't, she couldn't sign. I don't think she could put an X on a piece of paper at this point. And your husband was writing notes to you up until the night before he passed away. So I find that very interesting, but I'm, I'm picturing you put this paper with pens and crayons and stuff down in front of him. I just, I figured he was probably very open to like, Oh, well, this is a new experience. Let me try. But you said he's not. So that's very interesting. No, uh, he, uh, he was very, he he was very set in his ways for his entire life. And I, uh, he ate the same breakfast every day. And I, when, when he later on, the last two and a half years after he fractured his hip, and we had, uh, I had, had to have people. I never had anybody at night, but I, I, I needed people in the daytime. And I, had, I made a list. Of, it was a big breakfast, but I'm not going to bore you with the list. But he wanted the same thing, and... In the earlier days, uh, if we were invited out rarely to a brunch or something for an occasion, he would eat his regular breakfast home and not touch anything there. So in many ways, he was extremely set in his ways. Um, but uh, he was open to these things. I mean, how could you see that pad in front of you and not just fool around with it? And I gave him options. And as I said before with the Sudoku, I took it away when he wasn't doing it. But... Um, I've tried Sudoku. I am not a mathematician. I've always been a creative artistic person. I'm, I, the only, I, I laugh because I'm also a professional photographer. So I can, wow. I can do adding and subtracting very well when there's dollar signs and decimal points. I can even multiply sometimes when there's dollar signs and decimal points. That is it. I am not into math. And I tried Sudoku partly because I have a very big family history of Alzheimer's. And so I thought, well, this would be a good brain challenge. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah, I failed. I couldn't do it. I'm like, eh, I'll I'll find other ways to stimulate my brain. Starting a podcast business was not on the list, but it's been very beneficial. Very. (laughs) And then many of the other, not just. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and just, just so you know, prior to starting the podcast, I had a past guest that said she'd read a little, blurb that I'd put on Facebook about an encounter with my mom at with my mom and another resident where she lives. And she said, you know, you should write a book. And I said, you know, I think I might, but I kind of assumed my mom had been in the care home for about six months. I thought, well, I probably should wait until she's gone. Well, I've just, I have changed that opinion. And I, so I've told people the book is in there. It's, it's inside here. I just have to wait for the right, when the right idea hits me, the idea will pop out and it will flow. Well, your book gave me that, that idea and the flow. Oh, that makes me so, so, so happy. Thank you. you so the other question yeah, okay. that I had, okay. sorry, is I know one of the things that I learned recently with my mom, I had many, many guests that kept telling me, you know, you should stop going for two hours on Mondays and you should go 
for an hour on Monday and an hour on another, another day of the week. And it's, and I am very structured. I'm not set in my ways. But I'm very structured. There was a reason that Mondays worked. I would go after our rotary meeting and then I could come home and, and it was when I would come home after visiting her, I was just wiped out. I, I could not deal with clients or anything. I just needed to just to be with myself, maybe the dogs and the husband. So I was not interested in taking two chunks out of my week that made it very difficult to function as a, I don't know, middle-aged adult. My grandmother's almost 102, so. Oh, my oh yeah, I know. <laughs> Sometimes when I think about that, I get tired. Um, this would be my dad's mom. For most listeners, now I've talked about her a few times. I didn't. I didn't want to do that. So I finally got smart and said, you know what? I'm going to just do an hour on Mondays. And I, because of a lot of reasons, never managed to get the second day in, but she would get, I would notice that the longer we were together, the more tired I would get mentally. And she was getting tired. I didn't notice it until I started looking for it. And I, I read what you guys did every day. And I think, okay, he had a, he had an afternoon nap, but how he did not just, become frustrated from just being tired from all that activity? He slept very well um, and for uh, and, and long hours, and he also had that nap. He, so he, he got plenty of sleep. Okay, because I've noticed that, you know, the processing, it's like their brain is having to work so hard to do normal tasks, normal everyday living type tasks that, they get tired really easily, even with just sitting and conversing, which is what I noticed with my mom. So obviously this is a, a very stark example of how Alzheimer's is so very different because of the person that it's affecting and where in their brain it's affecting. It's just, I find it really fascinating. In the beginning, uh, when, uh, when I was very new, before I introduced any of those things, as I said, he was a mathematician. And he takes his, his lungs were a problem and he had took certain breathing treatments that um, and there, it doesn't matter what they are. But he was stuck for 20 minutes several times a day. And the beginning after the hip surgery, when I had people come in to help, um, I didn't want him sitting there 20 minutes twice a day with, with blank. And I remember going to Costco and getting the little kids flashcards and they would, I would I'd have them hold it for him, uh, put him up just to keep his mind busy, even while he was doing this nothingness. And two plus two, and they had the answers on the back. And then it got more complicated, eight times six. And they were shy, and he, he got the answers out like that from the very beginning. Uh, keep his mind focused, keep his mind focused. And then when he got used to it, and he does not speak Spanish, he knows it. But he started answering them in Spanish. Because he would get bored with the two plus two was four. So from the very beginning, I knew that if there's any hope, that mind, that brilliant mind had to be stimulated and, and not in a not in a frustrating way. And he enjoyed it. It was like and he was so and the nurses couldn't believe how he had his answers out so fast. And he loved it. He wanted to show off and, and do more. But surrounding anybody who came to help who wasn't giving him. What and as I say, remember, I didn't have anyone for the first three and a half years, and I never had anybody at night. It was just I, 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 in order to function, 
And, and by the way, I'm going to interrupt myself to say <laughs> that was a mistake. When I had the help that I needed in the daytime, I realized in retrospect that I made a big mistake not to have it earlier. Because when I could get out for a game of tennis or a walk or, or, or some activity, I'm just even a way to read a book for a while, um, I came back and was ready to give him my all. And I did. Without that, negative emotions start to creep in and there's resentment, there's anger, there's impatience, irritability, all those things, and they're going to creep in if you're doing this 24-7. They can't not. So I realized in retrospect, I should have done it a lot earlier. And given, even if it was two hours a day, getting a, a, a high school student in to play chess or checkers with them or something, it doesn't have to be a trained, you know, licensed uh, nurse to come in at this stage. Uh, but you, uh, and a part of it is that you asked me before, what did you do to take care of yourself? Mm-hmm. I, I realized too late, but, but I was, you know, still, still okay, that, uh, that I had to give myself an out. And it made a very big difference. For me, uh, the most difficult part in the beginning was that I felt guilty for doing that. And it's a tough thing to get rid of. Uh, and I, I allowed myself, not often, um, but I allowed myself if I invited to, to a big function, which he always hated anyway, or, or to something, or a movie. Uh, friends would say, come to a movie with us. Movies he couldn't handle because it was too much going on. He just he couldn't do it. And in the beginning, I have to admit, I was, what will people think? What will we think? Her husband's home and she's doing this with us. And I, it was a very foolish thought, but it was there loud and clear. And um, we got the opposite reaction. I cannot tell you how many, many, many people came to me, people I barely knew, and said things like, you are handling this so well. And I thought, they're not judging me that I'm doing this terrible thing. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, people, people observe, they watch, they, they see that you, that you don't even realize. I remember after he was gone, I don't know her name, but a woman who sat behind me at one of the concerts, who heard that he was gone, or saw that he was gone, said, Something like, um, nobody ever took, she, I don't even know her name, I and mean, she never saw me in action. She said, nobody ever took care of a husband like you did. I looked at her, I, I was so shocked that I blurted out, how do you know that? Like, you know, <laughs> how do you know that? And I can't believe I would say something like that. She said, I've sat behind you for years. I've watched how you treat him. I've watched the gentleness, the tenderness. He said, I know, how you, I know how you handled him. And that was such a, a special moment because people are with you. People aren't judging you for going out or judging you for doing something. People, people want you to do well. And they all saw the result from, from him. They all, as, as those friends in the concert that would come over and visit, more and more, he started greeting them by name. It's to my shock. And of course, every time he did that, 
I praised him and praised him and praised him. That's one. How do you know that? I mean, and he, he wanted to show me off. So he kept trying to remember people's names. It was the sweetest thing. But uh, taking care of yourself is, is essential. And because if you don't, you don't have it to give. And even the walk, exercise, and exercise is what they're telling everybody today with the virus. If you don't continue your exercise, you're going to go downhill fast. Yep. And, um, and it's, it's crucial. And especially I'm in Miami now and it's still sunny and, and, and beautiful and not too hot. And um, I make it my business every day. Um, it's a beautiful walking path in the apartment that I live in. And, and uh, but you got to take you got to take care of yourself in order to be able to give. Well, I'm sure you've heard that analogy. You have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can put it on the children, because if the plane is going down and it depressurizes and you can't breathe, you can't help them even if they can breathe. So. It, you know, it does make sense. It is, it is very difficult to do. I struggle with that issue. And I, my mom is in a residence and just two things on taking care of yourself. One met a decade ago, I went on a journey to get healthier, to lose a lot of weight because on my dad's side of the family, it's a lot of diabetes. And I'm very grateful that I had somebody in my life that triggered a little, it was a client who was a doctor and she said, you're overweight, you have a family history of diabetes, you're screwed. And the term you're screwed fired me all up. And I'm like, I'll show you, (laughs) which is a very typical trait on my mom's side of the family. (laughs) Uh, So you could kind of get a hint how my mom is. And I lost all the weight and I learned there was one day I went to the gym and it was one of those days I just walked in, (laughs) just steam coming out of my ears, just you can get the visualization, I'm sure. And my trainer said, is everything okay? And I said, it will be in an hour. <laughs> and I was done with the spin class. And I said, all is fine with the world. I do not feel homicidal anymore. And she <laughs> laughed and I laughed. And, and one other tip about taking care of yourself, well, it's kind of two tips. One, you got to do it. You got to do it to preserve your own cognitive health and your, you know, your sanity and as I mentioned earlier, you know, my mom was in the hospital and the hospice people who are helping take care of her in the care home said, um, you know, what time can you meet so-and-so at the hospital or at the, at her residence? And I, you know, did that. Well, I can't do quick mental math, but I calculated what time I'd get home from the gym, shower, dress, get to the hospital. I eliminated the shower dress part because that would just take too long. And I told them because I'm like, I have missed this class more times this year and I'm going. And if anybody cares that I'm going to take this hour to go to this workout, if they have a negative opinion, they can just, they can just go somewhere else. I'm not going to listen to you. (laughs) My whole attitude is if they don't understand how important it is for my mental health, my cognitive ability, my sanity, to be able to deal with my mom, and like I said, I don't have her in my home like you did. They can just go away. They can go judge somebody else because I'm just not having it. <laughs> as, as, as they say in Miami, you are numero uno. Don't ever forget it. That is true. If I don't take care of myself, I mean, I have a, I have a wonderful husband too, but it's like, you know what? I'm in charge of my own life. I will take care of myself. We'll take care of each other. It's all good. So... 
Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah. Basically, the essence of the book, Choosing Joy, and it's over and over and over in every page, practically, the more we treat our loved one with kindness and respect, the less they will tend towards anger. And it sounds simple, but it's not. And the more reassurance we can give, the more we can allow those we care about to preserve their dignity. It's, it's so difficult, but there are many ways we can find to do it. All of us thrive on praise and, and um, appreciation. So the universal message that became clear with my experience with my husband is that, and this applies not only to Alzheimer's, it applies to anyone who's declining in any way. That, and by the way, I knew when I was writing the book that it was not just Alzheimer's, it was for anyone declining in any, any way. What I learned after writing it from my readers is, no, it's not just for someone's declining. They said, Helene, you've written about how we treat all the people in our lives that we care about. So that's very, very special for me. So throughout my life, I've been really blessed to have major leadership positions in my community and, and nationally. And I must say in, in all truth, that was this tough? You bet it. It was by far the most challenging, but the most rewarding position I've ever had. So I, I think I'll end as I kind of began and that the most important message that I can impart, and I hope choosing joy um, does impart, we are not automatically the hapless victims of fate. Our attitude and our actions can and do make a difference, that we really can choose to live with hope and with joy. Well, we've managed to spend another hour together, and I thank you for all of your time and attention, and I really hope you got some inspiration from Helene's book about her dear husband, Aidy. If you like this episode, please share it with people that you know, because we need to spread this kind of message as far as possible. Don't forget to follow me on social media, and as always, I will be in your ears again next Tuesday.